uh, the book of Galatians, and today we're looking at a passage, it's a, it's a long passage, chapter 3, verse 10 uh, through 29. So it's chapter 3, verse 10 through the end of the chapter. I, I, and I want to remind you this. Tim, Tim last week, as he was teaching, was reminding you we're reading this and breaking it down. When they got this letter, they would, it's, it's really designed to be read straight through. So, but we're breaking it down. We want to really make sure we understand it. Uh, I, I will tell you our conversations in the preaching collective and with one another is uh, our, our conversations are interesting in that we feel like we're saying very similar things week after week after week. And the reason is that's the way the letter's written. Uh, it is a huge issue, and at stake is the gospel. So remember what we looked at in week one? That there was kind of Paul's standard introduction. And in chapter one, verse six, he said, I'm amazed how quickly you deserted him. I'm amazed how quickly you, you pursued a, a, a different gospel. So what had happened is Paul had gone to these churches and they'd come to repentance in Christ, churches established. And then the Judaizers came in behind them and here's what they said. Paul didn't get it right. Paul had half the gospel. Paul was teaching that I'm saved by grace through faith. That it was utterly, completely a work of God. However... As, as the message spreads to the Gentiles, the Judaizers were saying, you need, to become, you need to become Jews to be real Christians. So Paul takes this on, and it's intentional. I, 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 I'm going to say it's the only time, I don't know this is true, but I think it's the only time that in his introduction, verse 4, he just puts the gospel right in there. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin, that he might deliver us out of this present age according to the will of God and, and our Father. So at stake is this gospel. At stake is what, what, what does it mean to be, using Paul's word, delivered, or words we'll see today, justified, redeemed. What, what's the condition? So let's make sure we get this, because it was true since Genesis 3. Is that God and man have been separated. That, that when we talk about God, we talk about man, we understand there's a barrier between us, and the barrier between us is sin. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to hear that same, by the, same thing over and over and over again today. So the question becomes, how can a sinful man and a holy God be reconciled? And there's essentially two answers to that. Paul's dealing with them, and for sure we deal with them today. One is some version of man reaching to God. It would be something, it may include Jesus, even death on the cross, but it has with it some human effort. As we, as we look at words today, it'll be the idea of like the law, keeping the rules, primarily God's moral law. It deals with law, behavior, rules. The second way, biblical Christianity, is a holy God reaching down to sinful man, and salvation is supplied by grace. So one is about what you do, the other is about what God did. And that's the whole essence of this book. That's the issue. That's the battle. And it's important to the churches at Galatia, so much so, remember chapter 2, verse 11? When Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face, told him verse 14, he did it publicly, straightforward. Why? Because this is a gigantic issue. 
Are, are there many gospels? When the Judaizers coming along, are they just tweaking the gospel or is it still the gospel, but they just add this to it? And Paul's going out and saying, no, 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 no. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a different gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus died in your place. Put your faith and trust in him, and you shall be saved, redeemed, have eternal life. You'll be spiritually alive. Right now you're spiritually dead. So remember, a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul says this now negatively, a man is not justified. So let's remind each other of the term. Justified means declared righteous in the sight of God, to be vindicated of any charges of sin. It's the opposite of condemned. So a man does not come into right relationship with God, vindicated of his sin. So make sure, right, we got the problem. Here's the problem. Our sin is a barrier between us and God. I cannot be justified. Man is not justified by the works of the law. In fact, he's justified by faith in Christ, believing in Jesus. Now we're justified by faith in Christ. So that phrase in Christ becomes very important. We studied, I'm awful at times and dates, but we studied not long ago the book of Ephesians. In our study in the book of Ephesians, we saw, I think, in like the first verses, like verses 4 through 13, we saw that phrase, in Christ, eight times. I think that phrase is in the book of Ephesians about 26 times. It's about 16 times in this book, 35, 36 times in the book of Romans. And that's just quickly today me doing a brief count. So there's just three of the letters Paul wrote, and he comes back to this idea of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What does that mean? That means I come to this point where I put my faith and trust in Christ, and now I'm his. I'm in him. I'm resting in him. I'm not resting in my works before God. I'm not coming to God and saying, look what I've done. I'm coming, I'm coming before God and saying, look what Jesus has done. And I'm trusting him. And then he goes on, he says it again. It's not by works of the law, since the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So, so there's the point. He, he can't be more clear. And I just, what we just did with this verse is what we're going to do the rest of the day in the passage we have before us. So he says it in a general sense, in verse 16, a man is not justified by works of the law. In a personal sense, he said, we were justified because we believed in Christ. In a universal sense, here's what he's saying. He's saying there's no way for this to possibly take place. So a couple, just to make sure we got terms right, as he's talking about the law, he's writing out to the Jews, he's talking about God's moral law for our discussion here, it's works of the law, it's somehow us trying to make ourselves acceptable before a holy God. Another word that we're going to encounter today, passage before us, is he's going to talk about Christ redeemed us, chapter 3, verse 13. Redeemed is a word that is commonly used uh, of uh, somebody buying a slave's freedom, and, and so here's what he's saying. Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of bondage. In this case, the bondage of slavery. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Okay, we understand that part. But the rest of that verse is what? To give his life a ransom for many. To buy many of them back. To buy his people back. Pay the price for his sin. For our sin. Now, in the passage, here's what I want to make sure that we get. I want to share with you... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six verses here that, that, that make these points, make comments on them, 
And then as we work our way through the passage, I'm convinced that if we go too, too, too deep into a lot of the background, we're going to lose the majority of you. And, and I think if you want to go that deep, that's what the study guide's for. I'm not saying this will not be a, a complete study. It will. But, but there's lots of ways to spend lots of time in these verses. But I want to make sure we get the big picture. Okay? So, so in verse 10, he, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book or in the law. So I'm cursed. It's divine judgment. Verse 11, no one is justified by the law. Wow, what is this? I mean, we're uh, 10 minutes into this, and that has to be the fourth or fifth time I've said it already. No one's justified. No one's declared righteous before God based on the law. The righteous man, verse 11, will live by faith. Now, I'm not sure. He's quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. I'm not sure we'll come back and make this point. For sure, we'll make it heavy when we get to chapter 5. But what he's saying is, it's not just that I'm justified by faith. It's that I live by faith. It's not that I preach the gospel to me to come into the kingdom of God, but I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. Because every day I still sin. Every day, and when I sin, what I'm essentially saying is, God, I don't believe you, I don't trust you. At this very moment, whatever, and then you fill in the blank, whatever that is, is more important than you. And so often, it's driven by fear. Fear of man, fear of what people think, a fear of God's lack of provision, whatever it is. And so what I have to do is to stop. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they, and they were talking about, about fear that comes over. And they said, well, here's what I have to say. I have to stop, and I have to go, wait a minute. Is there any reason for me to be afraid of what God is doing? No. I live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, okay? the certainty of things not seen. Now, when we talk about hope, we use that word differently than the Scripture does. So, I, I, obviously, University of Iowa football is huge to me. So, yesterday, this is a good thing. Coach Ferentz hired his son to be the offensive line coach. That tells me he's going to be there a while. This is a good thing. Okay? But he's going to be the offensive line coach. We have a new cor- uh, linebacker coach, a new defensive coordinator. Still need to hire an offensive coordinator. I, I just, for the first time, I'm not sure why, just went through next year's schedule. The schedule couldn't be easier. And I, and I, and I, and I just said, I, I, I have such high hopes. I'm, it's like being a Cubs fan. Why would you put yourself through this? I mean, why, why, you know, my, my favorite T-shirt, I'm out at the Cubs park one day. Gosh, I wish I owned this. It was a long sleeve T-shirt, and it had the Cubs logo here, and it was just white with just a logo, and, the, and, the, and the, it was a girl. The girl walked by me and said, what a cool shirt, and I looked back, and on the back it said, any team can have a bad century. What a great T-shirt. What a great T-shirt that is. So it's like, why, am, why, why put myself, why am I doing this already looking at this Iowa football stuff? So I would say I hope they have a good year. Here's, what, here's how that word's used. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I hope, but it's certainly a long way from certain, uh, uh, maybe. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about something in the future that's as certain to take place as the things that already happened in the past. Because it's based on God's promises, it's not based on something that may happen or may not happen. So when we talk about this idea of, of living by faith, it, it, it's day to day. I might right now, right now, you may feel so lonely, 
so isolated, so beat up, so guilty, frankly. Maybe, you just, maybe last night was a big night and you did something that you considered to almost be unforgivable. And yet God says you're forgiven. And then that, ar- <laughs> this is how screwed up we are. Or maybe it's just me. But this is how screwed up, let me back, this is how screwed up you are. Okay, so here's, here's the tendency to do. Okay, so here, now I sin. Bam, whatever it is, there's the event. Okay, I got one side of me that says, well, I'm forgiven and it's done. I got the other side that says, oh, but how could I ever let God down? And now I waddle in that guilt. The, the balance is the two, is that somehow I know I'm forgiven. It doesn't produce in me a cavalier attitude. It produces in me genuine remorse and repentance and sorrow before God, but it's not a debilitating sorrow. It's a sorrow that says, no, God's forgiven me and he'll use me and I confess this, forgetting what lies behind. Isn't that Paul's terminology? I press forward for what lies ahead and for the very purpose for which God saved me. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So so the, the law produces death, cursed, judgment. God, through Christ, redeems us, which raises in verse 19 the obvious question, then why did he give us the law? Especially in the chronology here, because he's going to say, you had Abraham's promises, now comes along the law. The Judaizers are saying, why did he give us this law if salvation's over there? So what's the purpose of the law? By the way, this becomes hugely practically important. Verse uh, 24, well, the law's the tutor. And the tutor, how cool is this, leads us to Christ so that we can justify it by faith. Verse 26, for you were all sons of God, are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And 27, you're all baptized. So he uses the word all there. So what he's doing now is addressing a, a real issue that they have, Jew and Gentile, separation, segregation in the midst of that. And then verse 29, which will lead us right into next week's discussion. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, the promise to Abraham. So I'm going to do my best. We're going to work our way through this. You get the point, okay? I'm going to say it again and again and again. The point is this. Your works or the law do not save you. They condemn you. You are justified or declared righteous before God based on your faith in Christ, not in anything you can do. And, that, and that's always the battle. Uh, the last three weeks, God has put me in some amazing situations. And I've spent an enormous amount of time with primarily all men who do not attend the Redemption Church. Not that that's what saves you. It doesn't. Okay. But, but, but who would carry Bibles and go to church, and yet if you push them, I don't think they get this concept. And the way you get that, the way you understand, this is why I say it. I don't mean it in a judgmental way. I'm not being a judgmental at all. Okay? The reason I would say that is when I present grace to them, then they want to talk about, but can you lose your salvation? So I've had a whole lot of conversations lately around this idea. Uh, the jargon we would use is once saved, always saved. If you're a Christian today, can you lose that? And so they have all of these gymnastic conversations. And I would say, boys, here's the problem to me. The reason you even grapple with that is because you don't understand how you got into the relationship with Christ to begin with. Because if you understood how you got into the relationship with Christ, you wouldn't be worried about it getting out of it. Because it's a one-way ticket that he bought, he paid for, he gave to you, he guarantees it. So it's just a matter now of you're in the family of God. 
You are united with him. It's inseparable. The vitality of that union can be challenged. It's like times is good. I, I think of it in a human sense. Think, think of those of you who are husband and wife. Okay? You, have a, you have a union that, that's designed to be permanent, but sometimes, can we be honest, sometimes it's a little more energizing than others. Sometimes it just feels like a little more intense than others. Sometimes you, you, you feel so close to one another, and then there's other times you're going, really? Get your hand off me. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just the way it is. And it's, it, 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 it seems to me it's almost impossible to just kind of operate at this one level, go, 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 go. Well, the same thing comes to Christ. I'm in a union with him that's unbreakable. Sometimes it's so rich. Sometimes I can just get lost. I'm literally, I, was, I did a ton of reading for today, which, by the way, doesn't guarantee anything other than tired eyes. It doesn't guarantee that I got one thing to say, Okay. I did a ton of reading, and there were moments where, I, I'm not kidding, I was just swept away this week for, for periods of, you know, half hour, hour, two, I, literally where I would just kind of lose track of time. There's other moments where I just read this and go, really? Hmm. This must be the exception. You know, that kind of thing. So, so here's what we want to do. We want to get in. We want to understand we're in that relationship, and here's how we go. Verse 10, for as many are as under the works of the law. I just want what I deserve. God, you don't bother me. I won't bother you. Give me what I deserve. That's the law. It's a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things the law says. So here's what he's saying. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. And here's what we read. That if, in fact, you want to say, God, my relationship with you is going to be based on my terms, doing my thing, and, and, and it'll be compliance with your law, what, what Paul is saying, is what, what you read in Deuteronomy 27, 26, is you're cursed. It's divine judgment because that's absolutely possible. The law can't save anyone. Why? Because the law demands perfect continuing compliance. And we know this until I, I can deal with this with somebody who doesn't even know Bible. All I can say is finish the sentence. Here you go. Nobody's perfect. What's that mean? Well, we all sin. The point that the scripture is making is we as human want to grade that on a curve. When I, when I was in high school, I mean, the priests and the nuns were just savage. And so here, here were the rules, okay? 93 to 100 A. 85 to 93 B. Uh, I, I don't know where it went after that. 78 maybe to 85 C, uh, 70 to 78 D, and then anything else, they just took you out back and beat you. Okay, so those were the rules. If, if, if I had in high school, which this never happens, theoretical, if I had in high school uh, uh, an average that was 92.99999, they would say, is that 93? No, it's a B. I got to college. I remember, like, one of the first tests I ever got, I thought, gee, that wasn't good. And I got my test back, and it said, like, 63C. Really? This is interesting. I'm going to like this. How does that happen? Well, here we, what? Grade on a curve. I like that. The only thing better than grading on a curve is when they brought in the honor system, which I didn't have any, which really made school simple. Okay? Those were the two great discoveries. Well, that and a few other things. But, but those were the great discoveries I had in college. Okay? Now, 
I come to God. It's like the Ames test. Okay, this is the testing for all this education is just stupid. You, you, you can't do it. Just give the kid the money, let the voucher go with the kid. I digress with that, but you're going to test and test and test. So what do you do with the aim? We're going to have these aim tests. We're going to have these aim tests. We're going to have these aim tests. So we started going, what, what do we discover? Nobody can pass it. So whatever we thought was fair when we established it, we go, eh, I don't think so. We don't want uh, to have 23-year-old freshmen in high school. So what do they do? They lower the standards that they're going to do all the time. Well, it's what you do. It's what I do. So we come to the law and we say, well, really, is God serious? He's serious. That's why it's cursed under the law. That's why your works will never be acceptable to a holy God. Because you're coming in going, God, look at this. I got to tell you, I got it. I'll stipulate for purposes of discussion that I'm not perfect. But look at this bucket of good things that I did. And he's saying, no, no, no. If you break, and this is according to, to, to what James writes, if you break a law, you break the law. And everything in us is contrary to that. Well, no, but it was that. It was one little thing. So, so then we can get into all sorts of discussions that sound like semantics, but they aren't. But how many sins do I need to commit to be a sinner? And in reality, none, because I'm born that way. But the, all of us have sinned. Under the law, the law is a tenacious taskmaster that demands complete compliance all of my life. Therefore, you're cursed under the law. On the other hand, in verse 11, now he, now he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. Now, now, no one is justified by the law before God. Why? The, the righteous man will live by faith. R righteousness before God demands faith. The law can't save. Paul uses this quote from Habakkuk uh, 2.4 in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, um, I think in the book of Colossians, I could be wrong there. And then the author of Hebrews, we don't know if that's Paul or not, people differ, but, but he uses it there as well. In, in Romans chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, let me just read it to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes Jew, Gentile. Verse 17, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Luther said, when he understood Romans 1, 17, the doors of heaven swung open, and I walked through. Here it is. For in it, the righteousness, I'm talking about the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, demonstrated, from faith to faith, for it's written that the righteous man shall live by faith. Martin Luther becomes just a, a wonderful, and a bunch of Luther quotes today, by the way, uh, becomes a wonderful example. Luther is this, this monk, this Catholic monk. Uh, he is trying desperately to find some sort of absolution for his sin. Uh, the Pope declares that if you walk up a certain stairway in a church, that this will uh, 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 remove you from the punishment of hell to come. It was believed that, that Jesus' blood was shed on this, all the stuff that goes with it. Luther's son writes about this, and writes about Luther going to climb up the staircase, and he writes this. As he repeated his prayers in this staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk suddenly came to him. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon, he ceased his prayers and returned to Wittenberg, Wittenberg and, took, <laughs> and took this 
as the chief foundation of all doctrine. Luther no longer believed that there was anything he could do to gain favor with God, and he began to live by faith in God's Son. Luther himself later said, before those words broke my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. But when the Spirit of God, and with him I understood these words, I live by faith, I live by faith, I shall be born again. And that's the phrase that comes over and over again. Principle of the law is that I'll do something, live by works, and please God. The problem with the law is you can't live up to it. Luther writes about God looking at you and me, and he writes this. God speaking. If you wish to placate me, don't offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only son, who was born, who suffered, who was crucified, who died for your sins. Then I will accept and pronounce you righteous. So that's the whole point that he's making here. Verse uh, uh, 12, he talks about the idea, quoting from Leviticus, as he who practices them must live by them. He's talking by the law. If you say you want to live by the law, you practice the law, you're under the law, and with it comes condemnation. I'm relying on my own efforts for my salvation. So what, what, what Paul argues here is whether you're quoting from Deuteronomy or Habakkuk or Leviticus, it's the same thing that James writes about in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point becomes guilty of all the law. Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, there's no flesh that will be justified in God's sight. So when we look at the uh, uh, Shorter Catechism, Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, in there we find this. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth break them in thought. This just kills you. In thought, word, and deed daily. So he said they're all there. What you think, what you do, what you say. And this, all of this gets into just the errors or sins of commission. It doesn't even get into sin of omission, which are the things you should do that you aren't doing. So Paul's point over and over and over again is that your sin and therefore your works, because they're just sinful works, all I'm doing now when I come to God and produce and, and present my works to him, I'm just presenting my sinful work to him is all I'm doing. And he's saying that isn't going to work. The man's fundamental problem is sin and it's universal. It, it, it seems to me if there's any doctrine that we find in Scripture for which I look around and see overwhelming empirical data, it's the sinfulness of man, it seems to me. Brothers and sisters can't get along. Neighbors can't get along. Nations can't get along. Football teams can't get along with each other. Basketball, we just can't get along. Our sin is all around us. I remember being with Larry one time, and Larry Wright, and this guy came up, and he was, he, I, I don't know, I, I, I didn't like the guy. I didn't like the way he looked. That's probably not fair, but I didn't like the way he looked. But, but he had a self-righteous kind of smugness about him. And uh, I moved away, and I said, what was that? He said, he just told me that he hasn't sinned in three years. <laughs> so my assessment was accurate. Now, I'm not saying, maybe he hasn't. Get, let me do a little Paul Harvey here. Let me give you the rest of the story. Six months later, his wife divorced him, so apparently living with perfection is very difficult. Um, I don't know. We've all sinned. And you did this morning. And you probably are right now. If the standards love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, have you done that for a day, for an hour, for a minute? 
That, that's why he's, he's just heaping condemnation on us. Verse 13, but Christ redeemed us from the curse. And now he quotes from, again, from uh, Deuteronomy 21. He said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus came to, not to be served, but to serve, to give his, land, his life a ransom for many, to redeem us, to buy us back. And that phrase of hanging a tree, the, the Jews would understand that. As they heard this, they knew that was the, the fate of a common criminal. That was punishment. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. The same idea that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body and hung on a tree. Paul, in his testimony in Acts 13.29, talks about Jesus being taken down from a tree. It's as though, as they, especially they were speaking to the Jews, because they would say, this is blasphemy, because along comes this Messiah, and you're saying, this is this Jesus, and he hung on a tree? That's the fate of a common criminal. But what Jesus did in his life is perfectly keep the law and in that moment he encountered what luther called a fortunate exchange my friend larry wright called the great exchange is that jesus lived this perfect life he the exception complied to the law he was by nature god and sinless and maintain that throughout life and when he died on the cross in this sacred transaction this great exchange we trade our sin, and we receive his righteousness. And God declares sinful people to be holy in his sight based on what Christ did on the cross, not based on what we do. That's why Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment in this transaction is taking place. And all the punishment and wrath that you deserved was given to Christ at that moment so that now a holy God can declare you righteous because he doesn't look at your sinful works, but he looks at Christ's perfect life and perfect sacrifice. So he says, here we are in verse 14, in Christ Jesus, we receive this, this blessing of Abraham. And the promise to come. And it's not just we, the Jews, but it's the Jew and Gentile. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. It's that idea of being in Christ. And I would come back to you again and say, there's always people are saying, I'm kind of looking to do a study. I kind of want to do a study. I would say find a, find a good Bible program. You can get them for free online. And just look up that phrase in Christ and take, let's see, but from now till May, till June. Till labor, let, let's say Memorial Day. That's 99 days from today. Okay? Let, let's take that and just look at that phrase, in Christ, and see what the Scripture, primarily Paul especially, is telling us to be in Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says it here. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that we have God, not just that we're in relationship with God, we're now indwelt by God. So a few years ago, there was a song that was popular by Bette Midler, and in it, the idea was our God is a distant God. He watches us from afar. He, he doesn't intervene in, in human affairs. And the Bible teaches not only is, is he involved in human affairs, not only does he see the, the sparrow that falls and have the hairs on your head numbered, okay, but also 
he indwells his people. That's the promise of Abraham. So there's this promise. And that's what we get from verses 15 through 21. There's this contrast between the law and between the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is a promise that God makes. The idea is a covenant. A covenant's not like a contract. A covenant is a unilateral document here where God says, this is what I will do. And in this, Paul says, and that that covenant, that promise cannot be, verse 17, invalidated. It was ratified. It can't be amended. So we we break down in the analogy a little bit when we use, for example, in in the United States here, when we use the last will and testament. Well, we can establish that, redo that, modify it. In Greek law, once a, once a will was declared, it was done, finished, it couldn't be amended. It became public record. It never could be altered. That may be what he has in mind. What he's clearly saying is God will not change his mind. The law comes along, the law condemns. God comes along, the promise to Abraham, and, and not, not the land and all that, but the promise of the Spirit, the promise that's fulfilled in Jesus, and he says that's our promise. The law says, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. The promise says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Which leads us right into that discussion in verse 19, then why the law? Why even have this law to begin with? Why would he give us this law? He's made this promise. Why, why at all would this law come along? Well, the law came along, he says in verse 19, it's added because of the transgressions. The law comes along not to save you. It curses you. If you say, I want to live by my own human efforts, the law does not provide you any comfort there because you can't do it. Some of you are trying, right? Some of you now are just, I'm going to do the best I can. Some of you, even as you talk about coming to Jesus, and I'll hear it all the time, I kind of need to clean up my act first. Well, how clean do you want to get it? He's saying you can't, if you, unless you can get it to perfect, what you can't do because you've already failed. Now, I understand, again, I, I try to put myself in the place of those of you who are hearing this for the first time. Either hearing it, just literally hearing it, or maybe God's opening your ears and you're going, wow. Okay? Because it feels really heavy. If that's true, I feel really desperate. And, and you feel that way because you are. That's why he gave you the law. He, he gave you the law to, to present in you a sense of hopelessness. And in a sense, the law makes you sin even more in the sense that you now recognize what a sinful person you are. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, if it hadn't been for the law, Paul wrote, I would not have known sin. Luther writes this, therefore, the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man, this is what, the, the, the rest of this quote is why Luther didn't get invited to a lot of places. The real demand is sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, contempt for God, death, hell, judgment, and well-deserved wrath of God. So what all, all the law does is service in us and service all this desire to break it. I have a, a, a friend. He comes to Priority Living. And he comes to the first service here on Sunday. And he had a, a really serious shoulder operation, let's say, a month ago. And so he's walking around in a sling. But he found the first day that everybody that came by would just kind of want to touch. So he put, and when I saw it, first time I saw it, that's odd. He put a big piece of white tape on here. And on it were the words, do not touch. (laughs) And I said to him, 
has that helped? And he said, no, it's intensified the number of people who come up and say, is there something wrong? <laughs> Wet paint? I mean, you know, uh, that is, by the way, Martin Lodes Jones' argument against sex education. He's saying all you're doing when you tell a kid not to do it is making a kid want to do it. Because yeah, they don't trust you believing in all the stuff that goes with it. Well, that's what the law does. The law comes along, and all it, all it does is, is reveal to me what a sin. Here you go, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I'm this wretched man. What can deliver me? Christ, the gospel, the promise that was made to Abraham. The law, verse 24, is the tutor. Now, some of your translations, I think it's the, the King James, maybe some others, translate tutor as, as teacher or schoolmaster. That's not a good translation. The, the tutor was one who was a slave of either the Greek or the Roman who would take care of the family, who would take care of the, of the child and get them to school but not train them. It was the caretaker, the custodian. What's the appropriate use of the law? Look at verse 24. The law became our tutor for this reason, to lead us to Christ that we will be justified by faith. But now that faith has come along, we're no under the, under the tutor. I'm not under the law anymore. The law comes along and says, here's the bad news. You're cursed. You're separated from God. There's nothing you can do. You can't make it right. Third time now, all you're doing is presenting your sinful works to God and saying somehow declare them righteous. You can't. But they point us to Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? That, that's why we come back to this over and over again, and I think there's a sense in which you go, I don't know that I can hear that too much. I need to be reminded of that every day. I need to bask in the beauty, the joy, the love of that. The idea that God loves you. Maybe you need to hear that today. God loves you. How do I know? Well, he moved. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, is in Christ, shall not perish. Now, if I'm under the law, I'm cursed, I perish. And this isn't just, verse 26, to, to the Jews. It's all of us who are sons of God through Christ. All were baptized. So then, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free man, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If I believe in Christ, I am his. There's no more of these. Just, let me make this. As, as God judges and looks at people in Christ, he is impartial. He shows no partiality. And then he says to us, you do likewise. He's not saying there's no more distinction, for example, between male and female. Because God comes along in his word and said, here's the role of a man, here's the role of a woman. Why? But we screw that up. So along comes some guy who's in one of these, who's looking for some hammer, and he goes, wife should beat your husband. And he just browbeats her, browbeats her, browbeats her, browbeats her. And then, here's another perversion of that. Okay, now I'll have, I'll have guys say this to me. I can't work for a woman. Why is that? Well, the Bible. What is it the Bible says? Wife, submit to your husband. Are you working for your wife? 
This is not men are better than women. Go, daddy, go. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's saying in the husband-wife relationship, there's a loving relationship where I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and, and, and she's to submit to me for, for the good as she would submit to the Lord. It doesn't say that in the marketplace. So he comes along and he says, this, and these are huge barriers that he's shattering. These Jews would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. And the Greeks weren't all that hot about it. Here's what Socrates prayed. I pray and thank God, small g in God's probably, that I was born a human being, not a beast. Next, I was born a man, not a woman. And thirdly, a Greek, not a barbarian. So here's what he's saying. God's saying, as I look at men, women, Jew, they're all, to me, listen, I show no partiality. You come white, black, rich, poor, male, female, American, French. I'm, I'm stretching this as far as I can stretch it. I'm getting, getting it all the way out there to the end. Okay? But here, so what does that mean to us? Okay? Because here's what was going on in the early church. This is kind of cool. In James chapter 1, James is writing to say, you guys are all screwed up in the church the way you treat each other. And he says, chapter, chapter 2, verse 2, if a man comes in your assembly with gold rings and fine clothes and a poor man comes in in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the, the fine clothes. You say, sit here in the good place. To the poor man, you say, stand over there. And you've made a distinction among yourselves, but you're beginning to judge motives. If you show partiality, you're committing a sin. So what would happen like, I'm invited to this dinner, and I'm not sure I want to go, but I think I'm going to go. But, but I said, this is what I've learned to ask. What would you ask? No, not what do you have. It's a formal dinner. It's a fundraiser. What do you got to wear? Well, evening attire. Well, what I wear to bed? Uh, no. So if it's black, I mean, I'm struggling, okay? Well, if it's black time, I'm going to have to rent one. I won't go. Well, in that day, they would rent rings because it was a sign of prosperity. So this person comes in and fine clothes and rings. Now, they're not, their church was not like ours. It would be basically a hall, and there might be a bench or two, and they're going to this guy strictly based on what he's wearing and say, you sit up here in front. You're a poor guy, you sit over there. And James is saying the same point Paul's making, the same point God's making is you're making distinction that I don't make. So we make those distinctions all the time. I get it. This person has money, that person don't. We value that person. That person's black. This person. When you look back, it's Black History Month. When you look back at the way that the United States of America treated the, the black men and women, it's an embarrassment. There's no, there's no way to justify it. I hear all sorts of explanations. Okay? There's no way to justify it. Now, I can't make it right, and i got to go forward from here. So what would be that? The immigrants, especially the undocumented workers. Now, let me just help you out. You don't need to email me. <laughs> I've got this figured out. I understand. What? <laughs> what the, yeah, okay. What does illegal mean? Okay, but I have to ask you, that's the government's responsibility. Your responsibility, let me ask you this question, what does it mean to love your neighbor? This, this immigration thing is so screwed up, and the Republicans, the Democrats, and the government screwed it up for their own selfish benefit, and now they don't want to unscramble it, and we just live with the tension in the middle of it. It's like everything else they deal with. They just can't, they don't have the, 
the, the fortitude. <laughs> One of these days, I mean, it's everybody's way. It's that 6 o'clock service where I'm fatigued. Okay? <laughs> but, but that's what he's saying here. Why are you making these distinctions? You can't make those distinctions. And, and then he just closes it out. He says, listen, for if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are, you are heirs. If you're in Christ, then also you are of Christ and, and you are his. John Stott says, find their place in eternity, speaking of us, find our place in eternity first and foremost is related to God and his sons and in our society as it relates to one another and the world that we see all around us. So here you go in a nutshell. And by the way, we'll pick up that idea becomes now where we go next week. What, what's it mean to be adopted? What's the, what, what's, and, that, and that imagery is really rich. We get a sense of it in our culture, but we really see it in that, in that Greek and Roman culture. But, but here's, here's the big point. The, the big point is this, that the law will never save us, that we're separated from God. And there's nothing we can do on our own to remedy that situation. That anything that you bring is sinful works before a holy God. So if you're here today okay, and you're saying, God, here's the deal. If you don't bother me, I don't bother you. All I want is what I deserve. I'm an American. Pull myself up on my bootstraps. Rugged individualism. This culture really feeds into that. And I'm all down with that, too. I'm a free market kind of capitalist sort of a dude, okay? But that doesn't help when I go to God. When I go to God and say, well, I'll pull myself up by bootstraps, he's going to go, ain't got no bootstraps, son. I just want what I deserve. Okay, wage of sin is death. Separation. You already got what you deserve. Now, here's what I'd love to give you. Not something you have to earn, but something I'll give you. Not something you do, something I'll do. It's eternal life. And, and from a practical perspective, from a practical perspective, now I have what I want in life. Now I have, Jesus said, that he had come that I might have life and have it abundantly, that I find joy in him. It's not that I'll have every material thing I ever wanted, but it does mean I will have everything I ever need and I have him so as I face all of these things in my life, I now live. See how that connects now? I now live by faith. And I'll go, gee, it just seems like. And I'll go, yeah, yeah, and I know. Feels like you're far away. But, buddy, I'm not. Here you go. That's why what I know trumps what I feel. Well, what does it mean to be a son of God or a child of the king? Next week we look at exactly that. Neil's going to come, lead you in your time here now, our time of communion, over in the conference center, either Brian or Matt will come and, and close the time there in a time of worship through song here, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing truth that you love us and save us, not based on who we are, not based on our heritage, not based on anything we've done, but upon Christ and what he's done. God, help us live by faith and enter into a right relationship with you by faith. God, we love you, and even then it's because you first loved us, and we worship you and praise you in Christ's name.